Good morning. My name is Mark Bates. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to have you here. And um, something we meant to do earlier in the, the, uh, the fall that we have not done yet is, uh, as Drew mentioned, school has started, and no one needs more prayer than our school teachers. So uh, if you are a school teacher, either here at our school, ECA, or at any of our public schools, charter schools, or you're the homeschool teacher of your kids, would you stand up for a moment? We want to pray for you. So go ahead and, and stand up. And so first of all, uh, from all of us, thank you uh, for investing in the kids in our community and uh, for our city. So, so thank you. Stay standing because I'm going to pray for you. Let me, let's pray for them as they go into the school year. Father, we do thank you for these who have uh, committed their lives to, to teaching our children and to investing in them. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them for the task that is before them this year. Uh, for all of them, we know it is a labor of love. It's not something you could ever be paid enough to do. You have to do it from the heart. And so, Lord, we pray, strengthen them. Give them a love for those that they are teaching. May they reflect the love of Christ to these students as well. Uh, may, as they love them and teach truth, that it would ultimately point to you, regardless of what setting they are teaching in. And so bless them, use them as they are influencing lives here in Colorado Springs. It's for the sake of this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we are in a year-long series on prayer, and um, we are speaking this week about fasting. And so thank you for coming. Uh, because, you know, talking about fasting, I didn't know if anybody would actually show. It's not exactly a favorite topic. Um, but uh, we are going to talk about what that means because we see it as a biblical practice uh, that Christians both in the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament practice. And so we want to come to a good understanding of this. But uh, when Trisha and I first got married, uh, my parents would call every Sunday afternoon. And we would it'd mostly be small talk. Sometimes we would talk about important things like, you know, the Braves and Alabama football, but, you know, a lot of small talk. And, and then we would get to, by the end of the conversation, my mom or my dad would always ask, do you need anything? Because parents, even after the kids are grown, they just can't help it, right? And, you know, I'd always say no, but one time uh, they asked, and Trisha said, do you need anything? She goes, no, we, we have food in the refrigerator. And my parents thought that was the funniest thing because, of course, you have food in the refrigerator, right? I mean, everybody has food in their refrigerator. Uh, growing up, I don't know if it's because my parents grew up in the Great Depression, but our refrigerator was always full. The pantry is packed. I mean, long before Costco came around, my mom was a massive buyer of things. Like, she didn't buy one box of cereal. There'd be like eight boxes of cereal up there in the box. And then, and then uh, through uh, one of her nieces, would always raise a calf, and we'd buy a side of beef. So we had a freezer in the garage full of beef year-round. There was food in the refrigerator. There was food everywhere. Now, that was my growing up experience. But for Trisha's family, it was a little bit different. To have food in the refrigerator, you know, meant something. That was a, a sign of, of security. For most of us, there's plenty of food in the refrigerator. And if there's not, you're going to stop by Wendy's on the way home or something else or King Super. We don't go without food. We, we, we have plenty of it. And that, that's not something to be ashamed of or, or anything else. I think we're grateful that, that we just don't worry about food. But there's something dangerous about that as well. The problem is when you don't need anything, when you're always full, you, you, you lose a sense of desire that's actually good for us. 
Uh, when you feel like you have everything, you don't feel like you need anything. And that sense of contentment, while there's a biblical value of contentment, there's also a biblical warning about being content with the wrong things. Because when your belly is full of everything, you don't desire the greater things. In fact, in, um, in the opening to the book of Revelation, you'll remember that Jesus speaks to seven churches in the Turkey area, Asia Minor in Turkey. And one of the churches he addresses is the church of Laodicea, which is a you know, nice, good Bible-believing church. But here's what he says to the people at Laodicea. He says to them, Revelation 3, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see the problem with the people of Laodicea. Their bellies were full. They, they had everything they needed. And, and because they had everything they, they felt that they needed, they didn't need anything, including God. Philip Brooks said that the reason oftentimes we don't hunger for God is our hearts are so full with everything else. And so uh, we find ourselves kind of like, you know, when you go to a, a steakhouse and they bring out that kind of plain old white bread before you get your steak. Have you ever eaten too much of the white bread? And then also you're full and you get this beautiful steak and you're like, oh, I ate white bread. And, and you filled up on the wrong thing. And that's what happens to us. We fill up on the good things of this world, and so we don't have a hunger for the greater things, for the, for the better things. And so God has given us a, a spiritual discipline of fasting. And in the verses we read just moments ago, we see that Ezra is calling God's people to fast so that they may know and express their longing for God, their need for God. So we're going to talk about what does fasting mean, what, you know, what is fasting some of the dangers of fasting, and then also why uh, we as Christians should occasionally practice the spiritual discipline of fasting. So uh, with that, a uh, little bit of background before we look at this passage. You have to understand the context. Ezra uh, is uh, one of the historical books of the Bible. Ezra himself doesn't even show up to halfway through the book, but he's covering a lot of territory. And you'll know some of this if you've been coming to church the last few weeks. And that is this, that in the year 605 B.C., the nation of Judah, the home of the Jews, was it was conquered by the Babylonians, and many of the Jews were taken off into captivity. That was Daniel. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they go off into captivity, 605 B.C. They continued to deport Jews from the Promised Land to Babylon for the next 20 or so years until the year 586 B.C. when they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, completely leveled the temple so that there was not one stone upon another. It, like, it was like a bomb went off. There was nothing left of the city, total devastation. And, uh, and so then the Jews now are in captivity in Babylon. Well, if you remember uh, from last week, God had promised that they would only be in captivity, that the captivity would, would end after 70 years, that some would start to come back. Well, here's what happened. Babylon was conquered by the Persian Empire in 539 BC. And in 538, an emperor named Cyrus issued an edict allowing the Jews to go back to rebuild the temple. What's fascinating about this is Isaiah prophesied about the emperor even using his name Cyrus before Cyrus was even born. Pretty phenomenal. Well, so they start going back uh, to rebuild the temple. And if you'll remember from a few weeks ago when we looked at Haggai, they got there to rebuild the temple. They, they did not 
get busy with the work, and they dilly-dallied for about 15 years until Haggai and another prophet named Zechariah came, and they began to, to tell them, uh, exhort them to, to build the temple. So in 515, the temple was completed. Now, the book of Ezra covers all this in the first six chapters. And then we get to Ezra chapter 7, which is 60 years later, 60 years after the construction of the temple. Ezra shows up, and as chapter 7 opens up, we find that Ezra lives in Babylon. So he's one of the Jews still in captivity in Babylon. And the king, the Persian emperor, tells him, I want you to go back to Jerusalem, and I want you to teach the Jews the law of God. Now, again, that's pretty phenomenal. Here's this Persian emperor telling this rabbi to go back and teach the Jews their religion. So chapter 8, now we get here. Ezra is here, and he's about to lead a whole bunch of people back to Jerusalem uh, to live in the land. And it's a journey of 1,000 miles. 1,000 miles, that's from here to L.A. And they're going to walk, right? And they're going to go through uh, desert They're going to go through dangerous territory. They're going to find enemies around there. There are going to be lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. And so they're going through this area. Uh, And so he says, well, if we're going to go, we can't just pray. We also need to fast. Well, why? First of all, what is fasting? What is fasting? Well, fasting is simply abstaining from food. Uh, That's really all that, that fasting is. And when we fast, uh, we can fast for a number of reasons. Like any of you ever had to have blood work done at the doctor, right? And so you had to fast the night before, the longest 12 hours of your life, right? Uh, No eating uh, until you get the blood work done. That's one reason people fast. Some people uh, will fast to lose weight. A lot of people finding success through intermittent fasting. They will not eat till a particular time of day, and, and so they'll do it for weight loss purposes. There, some people just don't eat because they're too busy during the day to eat, and they are called school teachers. And, um, and so that's another reason people might fast. But that's not what the Bible is talking about with fasting. The Bible is talking about abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. Uh, it's abstaining from food for a, for a spiritual purpose. Now, what happens is, well, what happens when you fast? What, what happens to you when you fast? What do you feel? <laughs> hungry, right? Let's just state the obvious. You feel hungry. The stomach begins to growl and to gurgle like some of your stomachs are doing about right now. And, uh, and you begin to feel this hunger pain. And your body is telling you, we need food. We need food to live. You cannot survive without food. Well, when we fast for a spiritual purpose, what we do is we take that hunger pain, that physical pain, and we repurpose it. Because just as your body is telling you you need food, there's something that you need more than food. You need something even greater than food to live. Remember what Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. More than we need food, we need God himself. And and so when we are feeling that hunger that that reminds us of our weakness and of our neediness, and it drives us to earnestness in our prayer, because prayer prayer is not something you do 
uh, as one who's confident and thinks you've got it on your own. We pray because we acknowledge, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot live life on my own. I can't raise my children on my own. I can't do my job on my own. Lord, without you, I am doomed. I need you. As much as my stomach needs food, I need you. And so when you're fasting, that, that gives an earnestness to your prayers because most of the time, we really don't think we need God. I mean, do you really need God? Uh, you know, we pray, think of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. I've got a bread for weeks in our house. I've even got peanut butter to go with my bread. And, and so yet we're praying for our daily bread. Well, I don't really feel a need for bread. I, I think I've got it under control. But when you fast, you begin to feel that weakness, that frailty, that God's the one who gives the bread ultimately, Right? He's the one who provides our needs. And so we see that we hunger for God, that we need him more than we need anything else. Back in the late 70s, there's a woman named Lynn DeShazo. She had just graduated from, from college from Auburn, and, and um, she hadn't gotten a, her career job yet, was seeking, trying to figure out what to do. And so she got a job at a McDonald's and uh, just as she was taking time to figure out her life. And she had heard about this spiritual discipline of fasting, and so she decided to fast one day. Well, when she got to work the day she was fasting, her boss assigned her fry duty. Yeah. Can you imagine fasting and you're cooking fries all day? I mean, even if you don't like McDonald's, I mean, their fries are pretty doggone good. And so, so, so here she is, and she's all day just smelling the fries, just coming up, and she's serving them up. And, and between the, the fasting and the hunger and everything else, she just can't take it anymore. And at one moment, she kind of looks around to see if anybody's looking. Just scoffs down some fries. And then as soon as she did it, she just felt so guilty and ashamed because not only had she broken her fast, she had done it with stolen French fries, right? You know, how bad is that? And, uh, and she got home that night, and she's reading in Proverbs chapter 8 how the word of the Lord is more precious than silver and gold and so on. And she's praying, says, you know, God... Certainly, you're more precious than French fries, right? God is more precious than French fries. And so she wrote this song, and it goes something like this. Lord, you are more precious than French fries. No, uh, I think that was actually what she originally wrote. Uh, Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing I desire compares with you. That moment of hunger, and even how she failed at her fasting helped her to see that God was more precious than anything else. Your deepest longing, your deepest desire, those things that you're hungry for, ultimately the only thing that's going to satisfy your heart is God. He is more precious than anything. And when we fast, that's a reminder of the beauty of God and the glory of God. Well, Second thing is, you know, what's the danger of fasting? Now, some of you, this might be your favorite point. You know, fasting bad. Well, why could fasting be bad? And so let me help you out and give you some good reasons um, why not to fast. Now, there are some religious people, even within the Christian community, who have this idea that if you're really going to be serious about God, you've got to be really strict and really harsh, and you can't have any fun at all, right? You don't enjoy anything, because if you are really serious about God, you're, you're serious. You know, it's like the old uh, line about, what's a Puritan? A Puritan is someone who's worried that somebody out there might be having fun. Um, and 
which is actually not true. The Puritans were actually very joyful, happy people. But, um, but that's kind of the image, you know, church lady from Saturday Night Live, right? It's just this idea that uh, just really, some of you are too young. Google it. Okay, uh, okay, just, just YouTube. Um, it's this idea that, uh, that, that, that you just have to be serious and strict, and if it's fun, it must be bad. And so the idea there is then you're going to fast because it shows how godly you are if you're miserable, right? And so, so fasting becomes a way uh, to, 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 to show your seriousness and your godliness. Well, the Bible actually warns against this. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this, watch out for these people. And here's the lines he used. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And he says that that sort of instruction, that do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, it sounds, it sounds really spiritual. You know, when you meet those people who are so strict and just, uh, just so uptight, and they, they look like, oh, they must be godly. And what the Apostle Paul says, it's not it sounds spiritual, but it's not. He says it's actually a form of slavery. And not just a form of slavery. He says it is slavery to the elementary principles of this world. And the word that is translated elementary principles is also elementary powers. These are spiritual forces. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is this sort of legalism, this man-made rules that says have no fun, do not enjoy anything, it's not just unhelpful. He says it's actually demonic. It comes from Satan. It is this idea that looks so spiritual and so godly is actually anti-God. And that's not the only place he says this, by the way. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says something very similarly. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, he warns about those who forbid marriage because, you know, marriage, you know, you have the, the enjoyability of the marital union. And he says, and those who require, quote, abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving. He says that those who, who teach those sorts of things are actually submitting to demons. And he said instead, he says, that Apostle Paul says this rigid form of asceticism, this, this legalism that seems so righteous is demonic. He says instead, God gave us food to eat to enjoy with thanksgiving. We eat to the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Anyone, please, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a reason God gave the world chocolate. It, it is here for a purpose. Now you can overindulge, yes. But, but think about this. Think about how God, how he gives us these good and beautiful gifts. And you say, nope, I'm gonna be spiritual and I'm not gonna enjoy that. I mean, it's like going over to someone's house and they're having a feast and they bring out this delicious chocolate cake or it's hot Krispy Kreme donuts or whatever it might be. And, and you go, no, that stuff will kill you. I mean, that's, come on, eat, eat. Unless you, you, know, you can't have gluten, then I'm sorry. But um, it's, um, again, there's overindulgence. There's, there's simple ways you can, you can deal with food. But, but, but it, that's not godly. It is godly to celebrate and enjoy his good gifts. But at the same time, there are, there are times when we abstain from it. Yet the reason these things, Paul says, are demonic is because whenever you look at doing something yourself as an attempt to earn God's favor that is anti-Christ in this way, what you're doing is saying, I am going to 
earn God's blessing, earn God's favor through my living in a certain way. And what you're doing is saying, I'm handing up my works to God instead of the works of Jesus Christ. One man who learned this the hard way was a man named George Whitfield. George Whitfield was an English preacher, spent a lot of time in America. He was good friends with John and Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist Church. But before Whitfield became the famous preacher, he was Whitfield the guilt-ridden. And he, was, he was so, felt so guilty about his sins, he said, I've got to do something to make up for all the bad stuff I've done. And so he started fasting and praying a, a, a lot. And, and he uh, would do all sorts of things. And when that didn't work, he, he, um, he, did, he stopped eating fruits and sweets completely. Would never eat anything enjoyable. He wore a patched gown, dirty shoes. He would only speak when, uh, when he was spoken to and absolutely necessary. And he did all this and he still didn't feel any better. He still felt like God was mad at him. So in the six weeks of Lent leading up to Easter, he determined that he would only eat coarse bread with a little bit of sage tea without any sugar. By Passion Week, he was too feeble to even creep up the stairs. And then by the time Easter rolled around, his physician confined him to bed. He laid in bed for seven weeks. And by the way, the rest of Whitfield's life, he had serious health problems from the way he'd abused his body in this way. He never, his body never fully recovered. But as he's lying there in bed, he's, he had no sense of peace with God. And he said, God, what do I have to do to, to, to get you to love me? What do I have to do to, to prove to you? I'm, 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 what do I have to do? And the answer always seemed to come back, more, more. And finally, at one point during this uh, depressing time, uh, he began to learn about God's grace. God broke through. And as God broke through, and Whitfield discovered that Jesus had already suffered on the cross to pay the full penalty of the sins of his people. That Jesus had already lived the righteous life to earn the Father's love and the blessing for his people. And that if we put our faith in Jesus, we become so united to Jesus that Jesus' suffering for his, for, on the cross becomes our suffering. That we died with Christ when he died. That we, we've died to sin and its penalty and its curse, and we've been risen with Christ to a new life. And suddenly, Whitfield began to understand, I don't get right with God through my doing or my works. I am right with God through Jesus alone, and I receive that by faith alone. And here's what he wrote about that day. He said, oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and an abiding sense of the love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul. He, he just, he continued to sing. Then Whitfield went on as a joyful man, uh, preaching became the, the greatest revival our country has ever seen, uh, the Great Awakening. But before Whitfield, was using, he was using his fasting as a means to earn God's approval, to earn God's love. He was attempting to prove to God how serious he was by his religion. And by the way, there are even some Christian books out today that, that have this idea, if you fast and you do this, then, then God's got to answer your prayers because you're working so hard. That is not of Christ. That is not of Christ. Jesus has earned everything for us. And when we go and we pray, we don't say, Lord, look at my fasting or look at my giving or look at my serving. We come 
And, and Brian Chappell wrote a wonderful book called Praying Backwards. And the whole point of this is this. When we go before God, we pray backwards. In Jesus' name, I come. In Jesus' name, I come presenting Jesus' works, Jesus' righteousness, not my own. We do not bring our works before God. We only come in the righteous name of Jesus. So we do not fast to earn God's approval. We do not fast uh, to, uh, to deserve his blessing. Uh, we fast because we're hungry for him. By the way, there's one other, uh, another danger that I have to mention in regard to fasting. There are many of us who have an unhealthy relationship with food. And it's uh, just part of our culture and uh, part of the world we live in. And that is we take food, which is a, a very good gift that God has given to us to enjoy, and we, we use it in a way that's inappropriate. Uh, in fact, many of us will eat simply for comfort. Uh, we're, we're, and so we'll just, the emptiness in our souls will try to fill by filling our belly. And it creates a very unhealthy relationship. And in that case, fasting can be a good, helpful discipline because food's holding a power over you that it should not have. Paul says, I, I will not be mastered by anything. And that includes food. And so fasting can be helpful. Others have an unhealthy relationship with food because we live in this body image obsessed culture uh, that says beauty is, uh, is, is being like a rail, Right? And, and it celebrates thinness to a very unhealthy degree. And many men and women, people think this is a women's issue. It is not. It is a male and a female issue. Become so obsessed with their bodies that they have an unhealthy relationship with food. And, and then others will develop eating disorders because their life seems so out of control. And not eating seems to be a way of exercising control. If you're struggling with those areas with food, then before you would even consider a spiritual fast, you need to talk to your physician and your counselor. Uh, you need to have a healthy relationship with food before you begin. If you're trying to use not eating as a means of exercising control, that's the opposite of a spiritual fast. A spiritual fast is where we don't eat so that we'll see that God's in control, not us. It's not our way to exercise control. So just a word of warning uh, there about fasting. So I've given you reasons why not to fast. So you like that. Uh, so why fast? Let's talk about that. Well, there are a number of instances where people fast in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, sometimes people will fast uh, as a sign of repentance. Other times people will fast seeking God's guidance. We see this in the book of Acts. Sometimes people will fast seeking God's protection, as we see here in the book of Ezra. Now, what those, all those have in common is, in every case, uh, the person fasting is crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, I need you. I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your guidance. I need your protection. I need your power. I need your glory. I need you more than I need anything else. Right now, my stomach is telling me I need food, but Lord, what I know what I need is I need the, you, the one who's the giver of food. I need you. And we see this in Ezra. Remember, going back to Ezra, Ezra is about to lead a group of people on a thousand-mile journey. Uh, they're going over very difficult territory. They're going through dangerous territory. And we later learn that along the way, they face uh, ambushes and attacks. And as he's going to lead these people, he's got old, older people, younger people, men, women, children. 
And it's a dangerous journey. Now, normally, if the king sends you on a journey like that, you'd go to the king and say, king, do you mind sending us some soldiers to go with us? Because we're going to need some protection. It's a dangerous world out there. But notice what Ezra says in verse 22. He didn't want to ask the king. He was ashamed to ask the king because he had told the king, quote, the hand of our God is for good and on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Now you see, he has this problem. He's gone to the king and says, my God reigns over all. He takes care of his own. And if anybody messes with his own, God's going to mess with them. And oh, by the way, king, we're kind of scared to make this trip. Do you mind sending us some soldiers? Yeah, you know, his, his, uh, his actions would contradict this message. So he says, we've got to do this on our own, but we can't do this on our own. We need God. And so he calls the people to pray. He says, no, we need God. We better fast. Now, now why not just pray? Why fast? Well, the reason for fasting is because fasting uh, reminds us, again, of our weakness, of our desperateness. Uh, When we're hungry, we see how needy we are. Uh, You know, (laughs) how long can you go without food? Let me ask another question. How long can you go without food without it affecting your mood? Anybody here already getting a little hangry, right? You know, I eat breakfast most mornings, 7 a.m. By 11 a.m., I'm like, hmm. You know, don't talk to me between 11 and noon. Uh, you know, that's a, the grouch time, right? And then I go and I eat lunch at noon or somewhere around there. And then dinner, 6 or 7 o'clock. And if it's 7 o'clock, and then you eat dinner. And then, you know, bedtime's later, but I can't go to bed on an empty stomach, right? I mean, you can't, who, who does that? And so, and so you got to eat again because it, it affects you. And so we find ourselves that, doesn't this show how weak we are? I mean, we can't even go a few hours without food affecting us. We are, we are like little bitty babies. And unless we get our bottle, we get grouchy. We are, we are no different. We are weak. We are frail. We are needy. Now, we have to have food. And, and the, the fact that we have to have food, again, shows us our weakness and our dependence. Now, the longest that you can go without food, without nutrients, is, is maybe three weeks. I don't think most of us could go three weeks without food, frankly, uh, and, and live. The longest you can go without water, they say a week, but for most people, it's three to four days. And in Colorado, in our dry climate, I don't think you could do that, right? We are weak, we are needy, we are dependent. And unless God supplies our needs, we have no hope. And so when we fast, we're saying, Lord, I am not going to make it. I need food, but you know what? Here's what Ezra's saying. If we have all the food and all the water, but you don't go with us, we're not going to make it to Jerusalem. We will not make it. And the same is true for you and for me in everything we do every day. We're every bit as needy and every bit as dependent. See, when your belly is full, you don't feel needy. You're content. But when you fast, our pretense of self-sufficiency is stripped away. You know, I love food. I really do. You know that. So the question is, why would you give up something you love even for a short time? Why would you do that? You'd give it up so that you hunger for that which you love more. Uh, you know, I, I love food and I love Jesus. I love comfort and I love Jesus. I love the wonderful things in this world that God has given to us and I love Jesus. 
but sometimes I forget what I love most. My, my loves, all these things get disordered. And, and so what happens when we fast, it reminds us to reorder our loves and the spirit reorders our loves so that we love that which is supreme, supremely. And we begin to realize that our hearts are hungry for something even greater because the Lord really is more precious than French fries. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the good news that you really are more precious than anything. Father, I know for, for some here today, uh, they are coming in and thinking, I, I can do life on my own. I've got bread. I've got money. I've got a job. Lord, we pray that you would help all of us to see we are poor and needy before you. Our bellies may be full, but our souls are empty. And may we not confuse the two. And Lord, we pray even now as we come to the Lord's table that we'd realize that we cannot, by our work and our sacrifice, ever, ever earn from you the blessings that you have in store for us. But we thank you that Jesus already has. And so we pray that today as we eat this bread and we drink the cup, that we remember that Jesus is the one who's earned our forgiveness so we don't have to. Jesus is the one who shed his blood, and because of that, we can have new life. And Jesus is the one who promised us one day we would drink the cup in you with him in your kingdom. And so, Lord, may we hunger for that more than anything else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.